Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, February 5th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, members of the Walnut Grove community respond to the plan to relocate inmates. Then a joint committee session on criminal justice reform. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a Governor's Arts Awards Lifetime Achievement Recipient. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Members of the Walnut Grove community are speaking up regarding the state's plan to potentially reopen a local prison facility. Among them are the Leake County NAACP and Boys and Girls Club representative Gwendolyn Barton-Reed. She tells MPB's Kobe Vance the community is concerned about the state's intentions to reopen the Walnut Grove facility as a relief mechanism for Parchman. Our concern is we are a bedroom community. We want to keep it that way. We have already been burnt and and torn with the three prisons they had here before that were private. And being told by Commissioner Barnett they're not considering a private prison, but MDOC ownership of the prison makes it better because we can talk to um, MDOC. There's no third party there. Again, they may be looking at alternatives to sending It may be a training facility for those people. It would be perfect for that. Um, My concern, we don't want to be dumped on any longer here. You know, I know we're at the bottom of the economical uh, scale here, but we live in a safe neighborhood, and we don't want parchment dropped in our front and back door. So the people who made parchment um, the disaster that it is need to be held accountable. Every governor of the state of Mississippi created this problem except the governor that just got into office. Now it's incumbent upon him and his parties and all of Mississippians to fix the problem. However, we cannot repeat what has been going on. They need to release the people that needs to be released, release them into training facilities, uh, release them into um, um, uh, whatever halfway houses or wherever they need to release them to. They're not nonviolent. They're going to get out anyway. They're weight, financial weight on the system. We just want our community to keep flowing healthy. We don't want sick community. We don't want our community looking like some other places we've seen when private prisons come and go. We've suffered before. We don't want it again. And I know another one of the concerns listed tonight was that it was going to be close to a school. Um, could you talk about that? Well, it's um, it would be close to the Leake County High School, which is approximately um, a quarter of a mile from there, and the elementary school, which is a mile from there. So you have two schools, an elementary school and a high school, and churches and with senior citizens in it, and the Boys and Girls Club. All of this is close to this this prison 
And we're not looking forward to seeing any of these people move in it, but um, we can accept that. If it's a training facility, you got mental health inmates who could be brought here into this facility. Uh, those who have drug issues, because this is central Mississippi, and that's what we do here. We treat people with drug problems and mental problems. So I would rather see those people in the facility being treated and relieving some of the augmentation of numbers across the state prisons and just let them be more or less a diagnostic center. And I know you were talking about how like, uh, you think it's a good thing to go towards the state-owned prison side. Um, do you think that's going to increase security as well? On the state side, state-owned means that there's no middleman. Private prisons came about when the state of Mississippi refused to upgrade, pay their staff, and keep up with the facility repairs and changes. Um, they didn't put any money into the staff or any money into the improvement of the facility. So instead of doing that, private prisons came along and said, we can make money by housing these inmates because they're not going to spend any money at Parchman building new wings onto it. So we'll just absorb everything that's regional, pretrial detention center, all of those prisoners. They absorb. They made a deal with the devil, the private prisons. And this is what you got. They raped they robbed the state of Mississippi, and we still got the same problem, don't we? Mismanagement, lawsuits, deaths. That's what you get from private prisons. Gwendolyn Barton-Reed is a lifelong Walnut Grove native. Coming up, a joint committee session on criminal justice reform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. As Mississippi lawmakers tackle prison reform, the Mississippi Association of Gang Investigators says an issue they've had to confront is the thousands of gang members that flow in and out of the system. Jimmy Anthony is the association's vice president. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the state cannot continue to deny the existence and influence of gangs in Mississippi. Because of deniability, gangs have a pretty good foothold in our state. Uh, the strongest presence is in the Mississippi Department of Corrections right now. They, they've shown their existence in the last couple of weeks. We are trying, the gang association is trying to focus on keeping those people, the, the adults, gang members, away from our children. The people that are already incarcerated, we want them away from our children. Uh, we constructed new legislation. This is our fifth year going. Uh, trying to get it passed where it's actually against the law to be a gang member. Right now it's not. The, the law that was written in 1972 is washed. And it's actually an enhancement if you're a gang member, not against the law to be a gang member. 
but I need people to understand being a gang member means you're part of a voluntarily a part of a criminal organization. Can you give us an idea of the type of crimes that are going on in gangs inside and outside of prison? We did. You can pull our uh, gang threat assessment from 17. The number one was narcotics. Number two was theft or burglaries, that type of thing, carjacking, any type of theft. And then there was a very small portion of just small crimes, I guess you would say. But the number one is narcotics. Uh, the gangs control narcotics. If you have d drugs in your jurisdiction, the gangs control it. I mean, that's just bottom line. Uh, they are the pipeline to bring it in from the cartels or, you know, whatever sources they've established. Is there a way to get a handle on this? Because it sounds really daunting. I don't know about getting a handle, but I think it's time, just like all of us, my age, you're responsible for your decisions. If you choose to be in a gang or a criminal organization, then you're responsible for those actions. If you end up getting caught and you go to prison, you deserve the sentence you get. Not an early release program or anything else because you chose to be part of a violent criminal organization. Now, there are some reform advocates, prison reform advocates, who take issue with that in terms of young people being recruited and growing up in poverty, not having role models, the issues of, that are involved in that. I understand that, but most people, as a human being, you learn right and wrong at a, fair, at a very young age. People try really hard. I know plenty of people that didn't come from very much, but they work really hard and they become anything they want to be. One of the things that I'm looking forward to see in the prison reform is they're going to bring the workforce back into the prison, teaching people skills. That's the thing. When, you, when you're in there and all you learn how to do is be a gang member, you're kind of limiting your options. And there are situations where they don't have a choice. You're going to be with us or you're going to have a problem. What can your organization do at this point in that area? Well, we've reached out. Uh, we, we keep up with a lot of people on drug court. We're not directly involved in drug court. That's the second chance program. Uh, we're part of several, like, uh, celebrate recovery type things, that people getting people off narcotics away from affiliation standing. Uh, we try to involve ourselves in our, com in our local communities as much as possible to, to let people see there are other options. Being in that criminal organization is not your only option. People do care about you other than those gang members. And you talked about uh, recruiting of guards by gangs within MDOC. Right. And they're trying to infiltrate. The gangs are. Uh, they try to infiltrate law enforcement. They try to come to the police academies to be police officers so they understand how we do and what we do and then open doors that way. Uh, these are situations that we've addressed, you know, through my uh, position at the gang association. How else better to control what goes on in the prison if the people taking care of you is one of you? Jimmy Anthony is the vice president of the Mississippi Association of Gang Investigators. Anthony spoke to members of the Senate in a joint committee meeting about criminal justice reform. Republican Senator Bryce Wiggins of Pascagoula chairs the Judiciary B Committee. He says it's time for people to understand what's happening in Mississippi communities. It was sobering. Sobering, particularly from the information presented by uh, the Mississippi Association of Gang Investigators, people need to understand that is going on in our prisons and our communities. But also, I think people, uh, if they were listening, got out of it that the legislature has done things and that things are working. We need to do better and we need to do more 
Um, but oh, as you heard in the hearing from, from the Judge Harrell with the task force, uh, the last number of years, different pieces of legislation have been put in. Now, I will admit, the question is, why are we seeing what we're seeing right now? Well, as you heard in the hearing, this is a multi-faceted uh, uh, problem and a multifaceted, it's going to take multifaceted solutions to get there. Republican Bryce Wiggins is chair of the Senate Judiciary B Committee. Democrat Juan Barnett is the chair of the Senate Corrections Committee. He tells our Desiree Frazier reform means helping those convicted transition into productive community members. We have to get beyond just being warehouses, whether it's county jails or, 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 or technical violation centers, state prisons or private prisons. We have to do something more than just be a warehouse. We have to give these people some good workforce training while they're there. And also, uh, I think we should be providing some type of transitional housing um, to help these individuals uh, be ready to re-enter society. We heard some sobering information about the high number of gangs in the state among those incarcerated. And uh, the gentleman who talked about it said that there's been a lot of deniability about it, which has allowed it to mushroom and grow. I can probably agree with that. You know, some things we just want to turn a blind eye to. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, it is what it is. You know, we, we do have those problems. Um, and there needs to be other things done uh, from the community level. Uh, to the state level is to, you know, try to address these issues and, and discourage this as much as possible. Democrat Juan Barnett is the chair of the Senate Corrections Committee. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, a Governor's Arts Awards Lifetime Achievement recipient. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I just wanted to know what your take was on home health. Well, I broke my hip, and then I had a stroke. So that's two big problems. Yep. So home health is an extension of the medical team into the home. And it has medical professionals that are coming out. Most of the time they'll have a home health nurse at the minimum. Home health agencies can also send out other people like physical therapists, in your case, or occupational therapists with a stroke. Uh, they can do home assessments. You know, sometimes you can get sick, you can have a problem like a stroke, you go home, and your home may not be optimally set up for, uh, you know, for you to get around safely in it the way it was before you had that problem. Uh, they can help with that. They can look at your weight day to day. And it's an extension, really, of what your doctor and your healthcare team can do. If you qualify for it, I would say take advantage of it, even if it's just a short period of time. And again, there's a lot of other things they can do rather than just coming out. And they can help with equipment that you might need at home, too. So I'm a big advocate of it. You know, we've looked at studies of home 
health care and what it does for, say, readmission to the hospital or complications with a disease always helps. Always helps you get better and stay healthier with whatever condition that you have. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The annual Governor's Arts Awards are Thursday. The awards are given to individuals and organizations to recognize outstanding work in the artistic disciplines and community development and patronage in Mississippi. Among those being honored is Henry Danton, who is set to receive the Lifetime Achievement in Dance. Danton is a 100-year-old renowned ballet dancer and teacher. He joined MPB Think Radio's Mississippi Arts Hour to share his story. I was originally a dancer, and before I was a dancer, I was in the army, because uh, I was born into an army family, and my education was in the army. So until I was um, 18 years old, I was uh, um, in army schools all the time. Then I went into the military academy in England, and I graduated as a second lieutenant in the Royal Artillery at the age of, uh, I guess, 19. And where did you grow up in England? Where's your hometown? I grew up in a, a town called Bedford, which is uh, 50 miles north of London. You started off in the military, but you've had this long, long career as a, as a dancer and as a uh, as a yeah, as a we, teacher and instructor, and yeah. uh, went all over the world. And that's and and what what eventually brought you here to Mississippi? Uh, well, what brought me to Mississippi was um, uh, teaching. I was already teaching. This was about um, must have been probably eighteen, eighteen or twenty years ago. I came here because. Uh, I was teaching a a course for teachers in the summer, and there was one student there. The course uh, demanded that they come five years in rural and before they graduate. And this one student, she came every year. She was a very good student. I liked her. We got together, and she had a school in Hattiesburg. So as a result of that, she asked me to come and teach here. I was at that time uh, living and teaching in Miami. Unlike a lot of uh, young people today who start dancing when they're in, <laughs> in elementary school or younger, yeah. you you were a very late starter, weren't you? Yeah, very late. I, actually, I was extremely lucky. But um, I was fortunate because I used to like ice skating. I did a lot of ice skating as a young person. So I was um, had feeling of moving and my body was prepared for dancing. How did you first? So you started dancing at like twenty or twenty one. Twenty one. Twenty one. Yes. What was that? What what kind of led you to it eventually? Well, um, before the war started, there was a, a touring ballet company, which is called the De Basil's Company. They came to London, and they gave a season in Covent Garden of of ballet, and I went to see it, and I was absolutely stunned because I thought it was something extraordinary. And then, so how did you uh, 
decide, okay, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this. How did you find a teacher? How did you get kind of connected to well, the dance community? I, I've been extraordinarily lucky. Everything always happens somehow where I don't have to do anything. As I say, I was used to go skating, and I used to go to a skating rink in, in Brighton, and there was a, a young girl, you know, these young girls, like 11 or 12 years old, training to become a professional uh, skater, and the mother caught on to me. I don't know why, because I was a, at that time I was a second lieutenant in, in in the in the army. Anyway, the upshot was that they invited me. The the family, the the dancing mother invited me to their house, and I went to have lunch with them. And uh, we went into the garden. The little girl was in the garden. She was dancing around, and I said to the mother, "Oh, I wish I could do that. You know, it would be marvelous." She said, "Well, why not?" So actually, she was the one who took me to my first ballet teacher, took me by the nose and took me there. It was quite extraordinary. And you are, uh, you've, you've done some work with um, Bellhaven's dance program as well, right? Yes. Well, I was fortunate with Bellhaven. Um, I got to know an ex-dancer from the Royal Ballet in England who is uh, on the faculty there. We got to be friends, and through her she has uh, arranged that I go to Bellhaven, do a residency, and teach a, a, class, a classical piece or do a choreography. And I've done that um, three times. I would be remiss. You know, I would imagine, given your your longevity, people always want to hear about, you know, so how do you do it? When I was 49 years old, I got cancer. I got a Hodgkin's disease, which is sort of supposed to be a terminal cancer. I was fortunate enough to be guided by a chiropractor to someone in Boston who was a, a natural healer. And she uh, just guided me into a different way of life. What they did, they did not tell you anything. Not, and I found this wonderful book, which is um, on how to live correctly. And I read it, and it... I accepted it simply because it made logic. Everything the author said, he had a good reason I could accept it. So I um, accepted that system and I regenerated myself from absolutely nothing. I went down to the nearest point that you can be to dying and I just grew up from there. And that's, uh, it works. I mean, I'm a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for 50 years. And apart from that, there's something about the way you live, you know, about how you look after your body, how you breathe, you're trying to find good air, you try to find good food. It's actually quite logical. <laughs> you know, you have to live right, I think. For the complete interview with Henry Danton, visit mpbonline.org or download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. In national news, the Senate impeachment trial is entering what is expected to be its final day. After a day of floor speeches, it's anticipated the Senate will acquit President Trump. Senior Senator Roger Wicker was among those on the floor Tuesday announcing his intent to vote no on the articles. As I consider the high bar of impeachment tomorrow, I will vote not to convict. I will do so because there's not overwhelming evidence, because no high crimes are shown, because there's not a broad consensus among my countrymen, only articles passed on a narrowly partisan basis. And because removing President Trump 
on these charges at this time would set a dangerous precedent. I conclude by reminding my colleagues we are the trustees of the Constitution of 1787. We have the privilege and responsibility of standing on the shoulders of our remarkably perceptive founders. But we also act as trustees for our republic on behalf of future generations. With that in mind, we have an enhanced obligation to be careful, to resist the passions of the moment, to remember that what we do today establishes precedents for decades and centuries to come. NPR's coverage begins this afternoon at 3. We will carry it here on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.